Okay, friends, good evening. We uh, are coming rapidly to a close in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I've, I've very much enjoyed our time here considering these words of Jesus. It's very different. Um, examining a sermon, the direct teaching of Jesus, is such a very different experience than um, examining uh, Old Testament history of the people of Israel, and Levitical law, and the journey out of slavery, uh, the prophets in ancient Israel during times of rebellion or war, Daniel in, in captivity in Babylon, um, the pastoral epistles of the apostles writing to the church, writing to individuals. There is something unique about um, examining uh, the very words of Jesus. It's, uh, it's special. It's, I've found um, as challenging as many, many of the teachings have been, I've found there to be such a joy, um, such a peace in just this careful consideration of these words of Jesus. So we are coming rapidly to a close. Um, this was a 12-week survey, but all along we knew that we wouldn't have week 12. And so from the very beginning, uh, when Don and I mapped this out, we mapped out 11 sessions. And so, in fact, tonight is what they would call the penultimate session in racing. That is the corner before the last corner, penultimate. Uh, and so here we are in the penultimate sermon in this series well, I invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 7. When you find your place there, won't you stand and we'll read together before diving in. <clears throat> Last week we took verses 1 through 6 and verse 12 as a unit. And we now look at verses 13 through 23 as a unit. So let's begin reading in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, or Jesus might say, by this, again, by this, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone, verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, that is the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the unique challenge that these verses pose in the bigger picture of the Sermon on the Mount as it is known. We ask tonight that you would simply soften our hearts and make us receptive learners such that we can be accurate representations of the gospel that we hold so dear when we leave this place. For your sake and for the sake of that gospel message, we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we come to these verses, especially not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. As we come to sobering words like this, we should be reminded once again of the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a sermon describing the lifestyle of those who belong to Jesus' kingdom. This is not an outreach message to the disenfranchised, the skeptic. His disciples came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Addressing his disciples, he says these sobering words. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, he is the one. The world is littered with people who will say, Lord, Lord, but will not enter into heaven. Terrifying words. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so it is right and good to be um, sort of in, in holy awe of those words. Hell will be filled with people who claimed to be Christians while they lived on the earth. This is not a subjective reality. It is the working out of the words of our Savior. Not only that, but it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. Proverbs 31, 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Romans 10, 2, Paul speaking of the Jews, saying they have a zeal for God. Zeal, but not according to knowledge. Sort of like what Bodhi Vakam says, we're raising a generation of people who are very passionate about a Jesus that they don't know. Zeal, no knowledge. The gospel is not an invitation to a better life. Most of the time, we have seen, uh, I say we, I, I would speak for the broader leadership here at Hillcrest, both in our tenure and my seven years here, and also our collective lives. We have seen that most often when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, there is an instantaneous 
weight, the guilt lifted from their shoulders and a light in their eyes. And then suddenly they are like thrust into the battle. The gospel is not an invitation to a better life. It's a call to join a, a war, a long war against God. However, a life lived under the grace of Jesus is certainly better than one not, right? The gospel is not an invitation to a more prosperous life, though a person who has nothing but Christ is more wealthy than Elon Musk or the king of Saudi Arabia. The gospel is not an invitation, as John MacArthur puts it, the gospel is a command. It's a command, not an invitation. In Southern Baptist culture, there is the, the, the habit of giving an invitation at the end of the sermon. Uh, for, for those in the room to respond to the message of the gospel. And I grew up uh, sitting through many of these long moments the the whoever is going to come play and sing, you know, whatever the song might be. And when you're, you know, 12 or 8 or 30, <laughs> it's, it seems to never end. Like that song just goes on and on and on. And, and you're sitting there thinking, preacher, no one's coming, dude. All right, we're all saved. I know everyone in this room. We're all Christians. Let us go eat lunch, you know. And there was some pretty sharp criticism of me when I refused to participate in that tradition when I first came to Hillcrest. The invitation is given to come and pray, but, but not in the formal sense. In time, I've grown to become even more ardent in my resistance to perpetuating that tradition because I appreciate the way MacArthur puts it. The gospel is not an invitation, it is a command. When you think about the words that are used the most in the New Testament regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are not warm, come words. They are confrontational command words like repent, believe, confess, enter, Strive. Repent and believe is how Mark describes the beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry. After his temptation in the wilderness for 40 days, he came onto the scene and he began preaching in Galilee. Repent, that's a command, and believe the gospel. Two commands. Romans 10, 9, one of the most definitive sort of summary statements of how one is to come to be at peace with God. Confess, that's a command, and believe. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Not only are, what are you confessing, you're confessing lordship, which is subjugation of yourself under Jesus. Luke 13, 24, Jesus says, strive to enter in. And here, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Enter, strive, confess, believe, repent. These are commandments of gospel invitation. 
not warm, open, fuzzy arms. Since the gospel is a command and not an invitation, the real invitation that is offered to man is this, obey or disobey. Repent or rebel. Be at peace with God or continue to be at war with him. There is not a third way. Every biblical call to the gospel is a command. Now, as we think about that critically and we observe just what Jesus said in these verses alone, irrespective of all the others, does our gospel presentation look and sound like that of Jesus, or does it look and sound more like that of the false teacher who says the way is broad it's easy to find and costless to enter. That's the question for us as we consider carefully how we seek to be accurate representations of our Savior and the gospel in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, at our workplace, and so on. So with that opening challenge, let us consider what it looked like. Let us consider what it looked like when Jesus did what Mark described in chapter 1 verse 15 where it says Jesus began to preach repent and believe the gospel don't you wish that you could be a fly on the wall and be like I wonder what that would have sounded like and then you get there and it's like and you're like wait I can't understand what's going oh they're speaking in Hebrew or Arabic right? Fly on the wall. You would need a, a translator as well. Okay, let's put that in the, the wish box. Want to be a fly on the wall to these sermons that Jesus is preaching and be able to magically understand what he's saying. That would be the downside, right? I would love to go and stand there at Mount Sinai as Moses is talking to the people of Israel and they're making a covenant before God and the mountain's on fire, you know? Only I wouldn't be able to understand anything that was going on. I wouldn't know what anybody was saying. The occasion I'd be able to go, wait, 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 I think this is chapter 31, <laughs> right? All right, enough of that. My point is this. Don't we wish we could know what it was like to sit and to listen and to watch as Jesus traveled from place to place, preaching, 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 repent and believe the gospel, repent and believe the gospel. The good news is we have it right here. This is it. This is what he was preaching. So let's go see what he was saying as the greatest evangelist in history was evangelizing Galilee and the regions beyond. Here is Jesus' gospel presentation. Number one, the way. Four attributes. The way is narrow. The way is narrow. People will be told it is broad. They have been ever since the beginning. Galatians is among the earliest letters written to the church. And Paul writes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What's the point? Paul's saying the way is still narrow. It was narrow when you heard it the first time. It's still narrow. It hasn't changed. And yet they were being told the way is broader than what Jesus described. We should note that the way into peace isn't just narrow, but the path to get there is narrow as well. We can observe this in the phrase, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The implication is the path is smooth, it's troubleless. You just flow to the, to the way of destruction. But if the gate is narrow to get there, we must recognize that the pathway itself is narrow as well. So the way is narrow, number one. Number two, it's hard to find. Four attributes about the way. It's narrow. Secondly, it's hard to find. This is all from verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the way, and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. Verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's hard to find. Again, it's why Jesus, in, as he is recorded in Luke chapter 13, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Listen, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's hard to find the truth, the exclusive, actual gospel of Jesus Christ. There are an estimated 4,200 different world religions 4,200. The real number is unknown, but the best estimate is over 4,000 different versions of the way. Now, 85% of the world's population are dominated by the big five. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. With so many options pointing so many men, women, and children down the wide path to filter through all the rubbish, as Paul puts it in Philippians 3, 8, to filter through all of that and find the truth, Jesus says, is hard. Just practically speaking, Makes sense. Any number of like dozens and dozens or hundreds of Pharisees, chief priests, teachers of the law, 12 apostles, <laughs> right? Any number of false messiahs that sprang up over the years, one Jesus. 670 churches in Charlotte, how many, if investigated, would be found to be preaching the true narrow gospel? 1,250 churches or 1,500 places of worship in the greater Charlotte metro region, 1.9 million people. How many of those 
are hearing the way. Uh, uh, just a, a brief scroll of the news. Just a brief listen to our elected officials. Just a brief scan of social media content. And you will come to this inescapable conclusion. The truth is hard to find. A lot of nonsense out there. Jesus said the truth is hard to find. The way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. It's difficult to enter, number three. It's, it's narrow, it's hard to find, difficult to enter. The gate is narrow, the way is hard. People will be told that it's easy Follow your heart, trust your instincts, do what you need to do to be happy. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. The way to truth is easy, just follow your heart. The way to peace with God is simple, just trust your instincts. Like, like a recent interview I heard or it was, gosh, it might have been a story of a family member, you know, kind of. But it was, me and God are fine, I'll take my chances. Me and God are fine, I'll take my chances. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. The gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life. It is difficult to enter Following your heart, trusting your gut, these are easy compared to the confrontational reality that you are a rebel in need of being reborn. <laughs> Just a spoonful of sugar, the medicine go down, right? The medicine go down. Why? Why do you got to cover medicine with sugar? Why do they make kids' vitamins, like gummy, chewable vitamins, taste like candy? Because no one wants medicine. You ever had a, a, a pill, like, dissolve in the back of your throat, and you're tasting it all day? You're like, oh, this is awful. I can't believe I'm putting this in my body. It tastes terrible, right? A cheeseburger tastes a lot better than this medicine that's dissolving in my mouth. Gross. Why? Because oftentimes what we need is bitter. You know? It's bitter. They ate the Passover lamb with bitter herbs to remind them of their suffering, to remind them of what can lead to future suffering. What you need is bitter. And so you are offered an invitation to just be happy. Just follow your heart. Just trust your instincts. That's a lot sweeter than the true gospel that confronts the rebellious sinner and calls him to repentance, honesty, confession, subjugation, 
to the Lordship of Christ. Truly, friends, for those whom we are waiting and hoping to respond to our gospel overtures, we have to recognize, friends, what we're offering to them is medicine that's good for their souls, but it's bitter, okay? It's what they need, but everything that Satan is offering them instead is sweeter. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you mean you Christians are the only ones out of all the people in the world who you got it right. All of us are, we're all idiots, you know what I mean? You have it. You know how arrogant that sounds? Friends, we have to be just stalwart in the face of that type of skepticism and say, the truth is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? But is the hope of God for those who are being saved? So then comes the command, enter. Enter by the narrow gate. Come in. Obey, respond, confess, repent, believe. Second Thessalonians 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obey the gospel. Talk is cheap. Belief is cheap. Curated prayers repeat after me. It's cheap. Obey the gospel. That's a strange phrase, don't you think? The gospel is something you believe, isn't it? No, the gospel is something we obey. Our obedience is evidence of genuine belief. Disobedience is evidence of false belief. Lord, Lord, didn't I believe? He didn't. It was never evidenced by any form of genuine obedience. It is obedience to the gospel that counts for something. Thinking something is true, saying something is true. Obediently responding to the call to repent, believe, confess, enter. That is how we know we have been saved by the gospel. The way is narrow, it's hard to find, it's difficult to enter, and ultimately it will be entered by a relative few. The way, or again, verse 14, the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Heaven will be wildly populated. All the descriptions of heaven in Revelation speak of multitudes worshiping God, singing from every tribe and nation that is beyond number in the imagination of the writer. However, certain models estimate there have been over 100 billion people to have ever walked the face of the earth from Adam and Eve up to today. Over 100 billion. 
to think that those who find that narrow gate out of that hundred billion are few? That's a nauseating thing to consider. Isn't it? I believe, in fact, that only God has the emotional capacity to even live with the notion of the knowledge of every creation who died in their sinful rebellion, every hurricane and typhoon that wiped out thousands of rebels in one swipe every miscarriage, every car accident, every war since the dawn of creation, every murder, every soul to have ever been created. To know of them intimately, the hairs on their head, and to know that but a few will enter by the narrow gate. I think only God has the capacity to deal with that knowledge, to manage it, and then for him to be responsible to judge each for all of eternity. To be responsible for doling out justice to every one of those hundred billion as a burden and a weight that only an all-powerful creator God, as revealed in Scripture, could possibly manage. And so as we think about those who find the narrow gate are few, as we think about perhaps just the 7 billion people that are on the earth today, so many of which either have not heard or have not responded to the gospel command, how do we respond to that? I think the only reasonable response is faithfulness and trust. Faithfulness and trust. Ooh, ooh, don't do that again. I um, recently came across a video of a pastor who, I don't, I don't quote him because he's like my age, and I don't, guys my age are still stupid. You get to be like 80 or dead, and then you'll make it as a quote in my sermon. Until then, we'll see how the next 30, 40 years go, you know? And I, I used to think, very highly of this gentleman, and then I came across this video, and, it, and it, it was one of these things that, again, just reminded me, you know, like, we just need years to mature and gain perspective, but he was like, he was saying, when you think about the people in the world that don't have the gospel, like, how can you even just stand it? How can you even just, oh, don't you want to just, and it's like, Dude, if I follow that angst that you're taking me on, I would think that I'm responsible for the souls of 7 billion people. That is a burden I cannot bear. I can barely be a consistent disciplinarian and godly father to my children. I can barely not be a hypocrite in this pulpit every Sunday and Wednesday. I can barely barely not be a selfish jerk when I leave this place and I'm going around like you, going to the gas station, going to the grocery store, picking this up, doing that, talking to my neighbors. And all alone, I'm selfish. 
And you want me to put on my shoulders the weight of seven billion people? I think what you're asking is, is beyond your imagination, friend. What is the response? 116 people die every minute. We don't have time to sit through another sermon. Get out there. Preach the gospel. Right? Or maybe, or maybe there's another response. 6,930 people die every hour. 116,324 people die around the world somewhere every day. Either there is zero time to be faithful to the Hebrews' command that requires us to assemble and spur each other on and be trained up for godliness. Either there's no time because people are dying or the response to the truth of this is to be faithful and to trust the Lord. I can't go with that pastor who's asking me to wear the, like the, the weight of every living human being on my shoulders. I gotta be faithful and trust the Lord. You be a faithful witness, be a faithful mom, dad, student, grandmother, right? You be faithful and an accurate representation of Jesus to the world around you. And then trust the Lord Trust the Lord that he is going to draw those few out of all human existence that will make their way through the narrow gate. I honestly can't live with the weight of anything more. Maybe that's my weakness. Maybe you're stronger. But when I read the gate is narrow, the way is hard, those who find it are few, I think about, I, I graduated with like, I graduated with like a thousand other seniors, you know? Those who find the way through the narrow gate of my classmates are few. Of my graduating class, West Mecklenburg, are few. The 1.9 million in the greater Charlotte metro area, the way, those who find the way through the narrow gate among those are few. Stabilitating. What are we to do? I believe we've got to trust and obey. We've got to be faithful, diligent, accurate representatives, and we've got to trust the Lord with the rest. But that's Jesus' gospel message. <laughs> The way to truth is hard. It's hard to find. A lot of obstacles in the way. Those who come to the truth and make it through the gate, small margin of human beings ever exist. That's a brutal gospel message, Jesus. <laughs> Enter by the narrow gate. Well, and that brings us to the second portion of our consideration this evening, the sermon. There is the way that Jesus describes, then there is the sermon. That is to say, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. The sermon is a series of contrasts. You've heard it said, but I say. The Pharisees, me. The law, me. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Go and pray in private. Don't heap up words, but instead pray like this. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive those. For if you want to add the, the, the rest of it, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Simple, to the point, holistic, but it's not flowery, heaped up language. Don't heap up words, pray like this. Don't lay up treasure on earth, lay up treasure in heaven. No one can serve two masters, you'll love one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. Take the plank out of your eye before worry about the speck in your brother's eye. Which of you, if his son asked him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? Tonight, more contrast. Narrow gate versus wide gate. Many that lead to destruction, few are the righteous who find it. Do you find grapes among thorns or figs among thistles? Contrast, 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 contrast. One, 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 one. You see it. If you read five through seven, all you'll see is just over and over again, Jesus holding up two things, two contrasting concepts, two ideas, two investments, two ways. The truth and the false, the wise and the foolish, the wide gate, the narrow gate, death, life, over and over and over and over again. No more three-part sermons for me. There will all be, be two-part sermons from now on because that's how Jesus did it. One to one. We'll see it again next week in the concluding verses. The house built on the rock versus the house built on the sand. Jesus is the master of contrasts in helping his hearers learn. Now, this big picture observation of the sermon as a whole helps us to recognize the binary choice man is presented in the gospel. It's the binary choice man is presented in the gospel. Secondly, these constant contrasts help us to see the big overarching theme of the Sermon on the Mount. The main theme. Here it is. There are really just two world religions. Not 4,200, not five main ones. There are two. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ, freely given, received by grace through faith, evidenced by obedience. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. It is grace upon grace upon grace. The other world religion is the accomplishments of the hands of man. That's it. You're offered a binary choice. Grace or effort. Grace or law. Narrow or wide binary choice and that binary choice that is being held up by Jesus over and over and over again is the main theme every other world religion even some forms of supposed Christianity present a system whereby the individual earns his place in the afterlife by the strength of his commitment but not Christianity is the gospel a call to Obey, oh yeah. Confess, believe, repent, strive, enter. But it is grace. It is grace upon grace upon grace. That's why when C.S. Lewis was asked by his, his peers, what is it about Christianity that makes it so special? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, that's easy. It's grace. 
every other system is works. Every other system is effort. If you're good enough, if your good outweighs your bad, you can be reincarnated next time, maybe as a butterfly instead of like a cricket, you know? I'd rather be a pretty butterfly than a cricket. So I'm going to do really good. I'm going to try really hard. I just heard, again, I listen to Ben Shapiro often, both for good political news to get a good sort of Jewish sort of perspective on the world and on life, but I also just like to remember, you know, that this man is a Jewish man who knows the Bible. He wears the yarmulke. He lives his life according to his own testimony by those, I think it's 613 commands. But when it comes to Jesus, he misses the boat, and he literally said, we believe so long as you do more good than you do bad, then you hope it all pans out. You hope. You hope. Yikes. This is the main point of the sermon. This is the main point of the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. Mankind is presented with two options. In fact, God says, I'll write this into the genetic code of creation. There is male and there is female. There is light and there is dark, right? There's truth and there's error. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate. And interestingly, friends, Jesus presents these truths over and over again, touching every aspect of life for his disciples to mull over. So, let us not be too quick to go, yes, 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 I got it. I'm, I believe, I believe. Jesus was like, two choices, two choices, two choices. Everything in your life, it touches every aspect of your life, your very attitude, your very thoughts, your desires and your ambitions. You're either pursuing me or you're pursuing yourself. You're pursuing righteousness or you're pursuing selfishness. Everything in your life is a binary choice. So, that's the sermon. We come, number three, to the conclusion. Not only to my little spiel here tonight, but the conclusion of the sermon itself. We recognize that structurally speaking, in the original language, verse 13 marks a turning point. Verse 12 is like, like a hinge. And verse 13, if you will, Jesus is beginning his summary conclusion. The summary of the sermon. And how does he sum it up? He sums it up with some eight or nine verses, as we delineate them, about false teaching. <laughs> After all this, how does he summarize his sermon? He says there's truth and there's error. And look out, the purveyors of error are everywhere. Let me tell you how to sniff them out. I'm going to run through this quickly, okay? These closing verses are a warning. How do we recognize false teaching? Number one, there's no straight gate in false teaching. 
you will recognize them by their fruits. There is no narrow way in false teachers, but with false teaching there is almost always, though not every time, no exclusive claim to peace with God. That's the, um, the briefing with Al Mohler. <laughs> if you don't listen to the briefing with Al Mohler and you don't know that music, you're missing out. Every day, Monday through Friday, when you see, hear, or read about religion in books, ask yourself a question. Does this system of thought have the Lord Jesus Christ as its centerpiece? If it does, good. If not, be warned. There's, no, there's often no narrow gate in false teaching. Number two, there's no disturbing doctrines. Beware, Jesus says, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Wolves in sheep's clothing appear harmless, sound harmless. They have a message that soothes, never one that alarms. Can you imagine the wolves talking to each other as they sneak up on a pack of sheep? How do you, how do you say it again? Bah. Oh, okay. All right, I'm ready. Bah. I'm a sheep too. No need to be alarmed. Just a couple of sheep here eating some grass, not meat. <laughs> right? The wolf's message is always soothing, never alarming. I love the way Montgomery Boyce puts this. One test for identifying false prophets is this. False prophets do not have disturbing doctrines in their messages, even though the state of man demands it. Their message is one of peace. Jeremiah, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. They dress the wound as though it were not serious. What do you got there? Deep gash, four inches long. What do you recommend? Band-Aid. Be fine. Arthur Pink puts it like this. There is nothing in the preaching of the false teacher which searches the conscience and renders the hearer uneasy. Nothing which humbles and causes them to mourn before God, but rather that which puffs up makes them pleased with themselves and to rest content in false assurance. You will know them by their fruit. No straight gate teaching, no disturbing, confronting, penetrating, convicting doctrines. And then of course, number three, the, other, the last bit of Jesus' warning is the test of good works. The test of good works. How will I know that these are false teachers? Well, they won't, they won't perpetuate the exclusivity of my claims, Jesus said. They'll come with soothing, unalarming messages. When the messages repent, they'll come saying, peace. Finally, the test of good works. So important, Jesus says it twice. You will recognize them by their fruits, verse 16. Then he gives some analogies, verse 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Clearly, Jesus wanted his followers, the audience that he's speaking to are the convinced. He's saying to his followers, test the life of the holy man. 
the real deal produce good fruit. That is spiritual fruit. Not man-made results, but spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Did I miss one? Faithfulness. Bad ones produce bad fruit. Anger, strife, secrets, harm, pride, hypocrisy. Test them, know them. And then, as you so often do, once you have tested and seen and known, hey, you know, be nice to the guy, (laughs) which you have done repeatedly, especially this month for me. Oh, oh, that Hillcresters, both today and tomorrow and for many years to come, will be able to test the fruit of the preacher and come away at peace. I covet your prayers accordingly, and I welcome on behalf of the elders I welcome the test as well never beyond the test well we'll conclude the Sermon on the Mount next week as Jesus compares and contrasts two houses one built on the rock one built on the sand sure to be a good conclusion would you pray with me Lord thank you for your word and for our time in it thank you for your kindness to us May you watch over us and keep us and hear our prayers now as we offer them to you in faith, believing and trusting and hoping that you hear us, that you love us, and that you are concerned for the things we're concerned about as we are concerned for one another, concerned for your gospel. Hear us, we pray. We thank you for the great privilege of petitioning the throne of all creation. In Christ's name. Thank you, Pastor.